0: Hello, listeners. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to note that we recorded this episode on domestic stability dynamics inside Russia before Wagner head Yevgeny Prigozhin began his armed insurgency and marched to the Kremlin. We actually recorded it the morning of those dramatic events. We will record another episode this week specifically on Wagner's insurgency and what it means for Russia but we are releasing this episode because it contains so many insightful views that are just as, if not more relevant today. And now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor recording on my own today without Jim, uh, and I'm so glad you can join us. In the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, questions about Putin's hold on power have become more salient, given the mounting challenges he faces as a result of the invasion. Here at the Center for a New American Security, we've been paying particular attention to the stability dynamics inside Russia and have developed the Russian Stability Tracker, which identifies those factors most critical to Putin's stability, how those factors have changed in the aftermath of Putin's invasion, and their impact on regime stability. Following the launch of the tracker this past February, we're excited to announce that we've just published a new updated version on the CNES website, and my spoiler alert alert is, is that there's still no viable alternative to Putin, and the war in many ways seems to strengthen rather than undermine his hold on power. But to give us a good gut check and discuss how Putin's war is shaping dynamics inside Russia, we're really happy to welcome to the podcast Catherine Belton and Arkady, Arkady Ostrovsky. Um, welcome to you both.
1: Well, thanks for having us. Um,
0: Thank you. By way of introduction, Catherine Belton reports on Russia for The Washington Post. She's the author of Putin's People, a New York Times Critics Book of 2020, and a book of the year for The Times, The Economist, and The Financial Times. And she was on Brussels sprouts with us back in 2020 to discuss her amazing book. And Arkady is the Russia and Eastern Europe editor for The Economist. He's the author of the 2016 Orwell Prize winning book, The Invention of Russia, The Journey from Gorbachev's Freedom to Putin's War, and the host of a really excellent podcast, uh, Economist podcast, next year in Moscow. Okay, so Arkady, maybe I can start with you and maybe just starting kind of at the 10,000 foot level. Um, I'm curious to hear from you what has surprised you the most about how Russians have responded to Russia's invasion of their neighbor. I know like in in all of your reporting and certainly in the excellent podcast series, you've had some amazing reflections. But as you step back and think, is there anything that surprises you most in terms of how the the war is being received, uh, processed, managed, dealt with uh, inside Russia?
2: Thank you. I guess what surprises me most, uh, and I might not be alone, is that we haven't seen... Um, but let me start again. What surprised me most, I think, is that Putin has managed to launch this war, which really has changed everything in Russia and broken uh, and has been, you know, broken the way of life has broken all the um things which we thought were much more solid um really turned life upside down and yet this sense that nothing has changed that nothing actually has happened um the way that the regime and i think this is the two separate things on the one hand the way that the regime has managed to keep the facade, that nothing extraordinary is happening when actually everything has changed. Um, That lack of obvious change on the streets in Moscow, from what we hear, that lack of visible signs of war until very recently in most Russian cities, on the one hand, that that the fact that the regime could perform This extraordinary act of aggression against Ukraine and also against Russia's own future, uh, which is not visible on the streets on the one hand. On the other hand, the thing which probably hasn't surprised me as much, but from which I do take some comfort, is that... Despite all the repressions that we've seen, and this regime has now become really uh, much closer to, I mean, it is really now a militarized dictatorship. Despite all the repressions, despite the fact that they're handing out sentences, prison sentences, um, which are comparable to the worst years of uh, Stalin's repressions, 10, 20, 30, um, despite the fact that they're arresting people you know, for the acts of taking flowers to the monuments of Ukrainian poets, people continue to come out. We talk about you know, how little protest that's been. Uh, to me, it's been more surprising that it's actually continuing because um, people don't come normally on the streets uh in uh in in prisons um you know the fact that people still find courage to do that um is um is a source of some comfort and the other thing is that um we have not seen crowds of people marching on the streets um demanding more war in a sort of military patriotic frenzy that all that frenzy has been mostly contained to the screen of, of you know to the television screen uh rather than the streets uh again for what we hear the even the the all the letters Zs which marked Moscow and St. Petersburg in the first and other cities in Russia at the beginning of the war. Uh, are gone from the capitals. They're still very much present in the provinces, but it is it is almost as though the Kremlin doesn't want to rattle and irritate um, the urbanites here in Moscow, who just prefer to pretend that nothing is happening. So uh, I am surprised by the ability of the regime to hold things together and keep up the façade that this is a special military operation, not the biggest uh, societal shift and fracture and break imposed on Russia probably since the late 1920s that isolated Russia from the rest of the world.
0: And I know you covered this in your podcast too, but I mean, so the mobilization certainly was one thing that kind of brought the war into the lives of Russians in a different way than, you know, before the mobilization. And so do you think that that has had any meaningful impact on views of the war? I mean, obviously, we know it's precipitated and contributed to a very significant exodus of Russians outside the country. But kind of as you're watching what's happening, was the, was that period of the, was the mobilization um, a, a significant, change um, in in any meaningful way um, in your understanding of how it's made it more difficult, right, for the regime to pretend as if nothing is happening?
2: It was a significant change. that come at a price, at a political price, and for a while, you know, it it started showing in polls and uh, in the sort of attitudes to war, but it was clearly not significant enough to lead to any any change uh, politically within the system i was surprised again by the fact that the regime has managed to do it and keep the lid the lid on i i thought that there would be actually more um more of a spasm uh, in the system they have managed to do it um, at some political cost to themselves we've seen this in spikes of watching alternative news on YouTube and and attention people started paying Um, but again they managed to contain it um, largely because the people who they were taking had little agency and no voice uh, from the provinces, from small towns having no social lifts No opportunities in life, as one of the characters who was in my podcast described this city, a town in Siberia, which was receiving a lot of loot from Butcher. uh, She described that town as a as a town of five prison camps and one tractor factory that hasn't been working for the past twenty years. Uh, where war is the way of sustenance, basically, of your life, where your choices is to go and fight in the war because they tell you to um, and probably die of either violence or alcoholism or both uh, at at the age of 50 and the population is either serving sentence or guarding those who are serving sentences in those camps. So this is the first category of people that we're taking um, into... Um to, to into the trenches, but still, you know, I thought it would produce more of an effect. We don't know where that line is, whether Putin can actually sustain another wave of mobilization, uh, how many people he could take, because if we're talking about millions, if we're talking about two, three million of people, that they would need to uh make a change on the on the front if they wanted to advance again following Ukraine's counter offensive that's the figures we're talking about. Uh, and we don't know where their breaking point is and whether they can actually afford to go into large cities with a um, more mobile and urban population and start taking people, uh, grabbing them on the streets. They obviously been doing the old kind of slow boiling of the frog uh, thing. And uh, that's basically been Putin's technique uh, all along. And since the beginning of the war, and all he's done is to normalize it and sort of make it, turn it into routine, to routinize and normalize the war saying, this is now your way of life. This is how it's going to be, get used to it. Um, and sadly people are getting used to it if you slow boil the frog. And that's why so much depends on actually what happens on the on the battlefields in Ukraine, because that will determine, I think the moods to a much greater extent um, than anything else.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that. But Catherine, I mean, you've done some really wonderful reporting on trying to capture elite views and attitudes. And, you know, I'm reminded there was, I don't know, a month or two ago, that leaked uh, tape of a conversation between two second-tier oligarchs that had very damning assessments of the Russian leadership. Um, and so I wonder, kind of based on the work that you're doing and the conversations that you're having, to what extent is that elite – Um, Frustration, discontent, um, characteristic, you know, to to what extent is that shared by uh, other members of the elite? You know, what are you hearing in terms of elite views and attitudes of Putin's war?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the cases Arkady was talking about that for the most of the population, they tried to pretend as if the war wasn't going on, or if it was something like a football match that they were watching on television. And I guess, you know, Russia went through uh, much smaller wars like this before, like when, when Russia was bombing Chechnya. And most of the people in Moscow didn't really pay any attention to that either. And this is almost uh, uh, another version of that, though it's uh, the scale is is far larger. And as Arkady pointed out, it really has sort of completely uh, broken all the pacts that that Putin made with the people. Uh, I mean, certainly when the first mobilisation was conducted in September, you had people like Konstantin Ramchukov, the editor of News Avisa, who's very powerful, very well connected, saying, this is it, Putin has broken uh, the pact with the population. He's meant to be the guarantor of stability and predictability, and now you can be just like foisted any moment off the street and carried off to your almost certain death in the war. But Putin has managed to kind of, uh, you know, he's had this war of half steps, he's only had the partial mobilisation, it hasn't been full scale, like Arkady was talking about. So and most of the mobilised people have, have been uh, taken from the regions where, yeah, they have little say, or agency. Um, but for, um but for the elite, this is still a, a huge shock to them. I mean, they've seen like everything that they've uh, been building for the last thirty years. Essentially exploded. I mean, they say this is a catastrophe. Uh, you know, they've been building to build, working to build international empires. They've been working to build international reputations uh, for the security services. It's also a huge upheaval, particularly foreign intelligence uh, operatives, because of course they've relied on having. Uh, soft power networks, you know, and to influence like other countries in the West, but they've also been, you know, completely uprooted. And you'll hear many of them complain about how, you know, Putin, he couldn't even organize a proper provocation to start the war. Like there could have at least been like a terrorist attack or the apartment bombings, which was the ruse to start the second war in Chechnya, which brought Putin to power. And yet, none of that happened and they feel that they've sort of been left naked and everyone can see uh Putin's uh regime for for what it is. But of course, uh, you know, they only say this privately, like in that tapped conversation between uh, the two, uh, kind of, it was a businessman, Farhad Ahmedov, and uh, and another of his uh, business associates, and they were talking about how Putin, he's basically screwed us, our entire future, uh, those of our children, and they are sitting with their head in their hands, it's become much more difficult, of course, to keep their bank accounts in the West, no one can have a, a bank account in the West if you have a Russian passport. Um, Of course, they're finding ways around it. They're opening kind of routes through the UAE uh, mostly. And of course, going to uh, or had been until recently Kazakhstan and Armenia until there was a very big crackdown recently by the U.S., so, I mean, their lives have become much more difficult. And of course, Putin, he was there uh, for the last 23 years of uh, for the elite in particular as the guarantor of stability. I mean, of course, they all became fabulously wealthy uh on the premise that that Putin would guarantee uh, there wouldn't be any sort of major upheavals and on that basis, they were willing to share part of their wealth with the Kremlin whenever they were asked to. And that's how they got to keep their fortunes. But that has been completely overturned. And yet, obviously, you know, they... Know what the consequences are of speaking out and challenging the regime, uh, because yes, uh, we saw what happened to Karimouza. Of course, he's an opposition politician and, and certainly not a member of any inner circle or elite. But he got 25 years uh, in jail, and they've been watching as one by one other business executives have fallen mysteriously to their deaths from uh, balconies and, and so on. So, of course, the the risk to them are enormous. But we do see uh, signs of the cracks emerging. Uh, First of all, after the mobilization, the loss of Kherson and Kharkiv in September, Putin was able to contain it then. But now, again, we see these uh, stirrings. Uh, Again, uh, we've seen uh, there was Konstantin Zatulin, who's quite a senior MP in the Duma. He's very close to top members of the FSB. He, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, based said that uh, some of the aims uh, of the military operation were senseless and we haven't achieved any of them. Uh, you know, this was a very open kind of... You know, disavowing of of the the aims of the so-called special military operation, and and this is really unheard of for someone of his stature to speak so openly about this. And we see this constant uh, tirade of of challenge from Evgeny Prigozhin, of course, the the Wagner uh, head, and uh, of course, uh, you know, he he is allowed to make these challenges. He's allowed to criticize uh, the leadership of the Russian army and and so on, because uh, he's a patriot. So he doesn't criticize Putin. So he's there to allow the dissatisfaction to be uh, basically expressed. He's there as a mechanism to let off steam, but only if he doesn't directly challenge Putin.
0: I, this That was definitely one of the topics I wanted to raise is this issue of progosion. And so, Arkady, do you agree with Catherine in terms of, I mean, that has been one of the kind of conundrums or questions is obviously, you know, Putin has very much cracked down on any kind of dissent about the war amongst more liberal opposition. And yet he allows the Purgosians and others on the more hawkish side to continuously express some of this content and dissatisfaction with how the war is being executed. And I mean, that really is the question um, as to why Putin allows this to continue. And it does seem like, especially in recent weeks, that Prigozhin is getting much closer to that line of almost directly criticizing Putin. It seems implicit almost in his criticisms. And so why, I mean, what is your view on why Putin allows that to continue?
2: Um. We don't know how much he actually allows uh, and how much of it is, is testing the lines and how much is testing the boundaries. I mean, we assume that Putin is sitting there sort of controlling everything. Um, look, what Prigozhin is doing is quite out of the, the... That's extraordinary. I mean, it is not how that system worked before because sowing uh, arguments between parts of the elite, and assuming they're all the arbiter, that's one thing, allowing it to spill into the open and actually start destabilizing uh, the situation and actually having effect on the morale of the officers and soldiers, that's quite another. Because if you are an officer now under Ukrainian attack, um, and what you hear, because they read the same telegram channels, and they hear the same stuff. And what you hear is that people who command you um, are completely rotten, corrupt, and useless. And the war aims are unachievable. I mean that that surely does have some effect on on your on your morale. It was a very. It's very interesting. Just I was thinking of, as Catherine was talking um, and describing that milieu that Catherine knows so well. Of Putin's elite, um, it's just one small thought occurred to me at the time that, that you know we talk about what people say. You know, why don't Russian people sort of come out in the streets and challenge Putin? I mean, to me, I mean, in terms of the surprises, I tell you what I think probably hasn't surprised Catherine because she knows these people uh, better, and she's she's been as she was writing her excellent book. Uh, had more conversations with them, but I possibly naively uh, thought that they would actually have more agency, that uh, Elvira Nabiulina, the head of the central bank, would not stay in her position, that there would be more exits, there would be more defections, etc. I mean, we talk about why people not actually rising. I mean, it, it's much more interesting why the elites are not politicized uh why they i mean they're not really elites in that sense at all because they they have no they they're completely fatalistic um to put in terms of why you know taking sort of a view sort of slightly more general view i think it's exactly what Catherine said is that the, the um for as long as debate i mean to putin It's far more dangerous to have people on the liberal or the sort of technocratic side, if you like, to start saying things openly. The reason that is dangerous is that if you have the population which is... 20%, and we know this from the polls, 15-20% are opposed to the war, think it's a bad idea. And you have 20%, 25% on the other uh, side, on the other poll, saying, no, no, this war must continue, even if Putin goes, and we must, you know, the really, sort of, the, the, the part of the country that's possessed by this spirit of war, um... And you have the 50-60% in the middle of the silent majority, which is like majorities anywhere in any country, they don't have an opinion of their own, but they side with whichever opinion they hear loudest. So as long as all they hear is that stuff on the right saying the war might, you know, the pro-war party, they are sort of in that. They are sort of on the side of the war. It's just the question of how far, etc. If they start hearing the other uh, message about this was a mistake and why don't we just go back and stop the war and go back to normal life, that's dangerous because there is always a risk that they will swing to that to that line. But this said, what Prigozhin is now saying is absolutely astonishing. I'm just just opening my Twitter right. So basically, the last video he's recorded, and it's now being circulated, you know, it's gone sort of going viral from what I can tell, is that um, nothing that bad was happening in Donbass in 2014. uh, That it's been completely robbed by the Russians and by Yanukovych, that is the overthrown president, uh, that there hasn't been a war there there were some exchanges of fire but nothing special uh russians were never interested in the east of ukraine nobody cared about those people uh it's all the fault of the corrupt ukrainians close to Yunukovych, who um basically told putin lies about how ukraine is going to fall and and how russia is going to get attacked uh and the only people who are benefiting from this war is now minister of defense shoigu uh, chief of staff, chairman of, uh, joint chief of staff, Gerasimov, uh, and the propagandists like Simanian, the editor of Russia Today. They're, it's a racket. They're just racketeering. I mean, that message is in itself is, of course, extraordinary. And I start questioning at a certain point, we assume that Putin controls everything. And it's true that Prigozhin is probably acting, you know, that he is not just a complete maverick. That he is siding with somebody, or there is some faction—be it in the FSB, be it with some of Putin cronies, be it some camp—but he is on a—he is doing something, and to the extent to which it's actually getting control, um, is very very hard to tell. And who's been recruited by whom? You know, my favorite story is about Lenin being recruited by the German, um, by the German military. Uh, at the time of the First World War, and being sent to St. Petersburg to stir revolution and stop the war, and then, you know he, he probably wasn't the on the paid bill the um, of the German um, chief staff, but only three years later, you know, where was the German you know military, and where was Lenin? I mean, the people gain agency um, very, very, very fast. So, to what extent they can control this process? Uh, is a very open question. I was interested in what you said about, and you're of course right, that this was the whole purpose of starting the war, is to consolidate power, because his rating was going down, time was sort of, historic time anyway, was moving against him. But that's if you win the war. Um, What happens when... Uh, you start losing the war. I mean, they're not at that point yet, but things are definitely not going well. It's a very different proposition. And of course, the nature of these regimes is that nothing changes until it does. So when people say, oh, but we don't see any signs. Well, of course, we don't see any signs because if we did, it wouldn't be uh, a sort of personalistic autocratic regime.
0: I fully agree. And that's the line I always use is these kind of personalist dictatorships are stable until they're not. Um, And I think that's kind of the point with what we've done with the stability tracker is really trying to articulate what the pillars of Putin's stability are and historically have been and how they're changing over time. Um, And trying to, to the extent that we're able, look for the early indicators and warning signs that you know, that that things are moving more in that direction. I think the issue is, is that so long as the war continues, that actually being at war is helping Putin because it is shutting down the avenues through which different segments of Russian society would challenge him. So we've talked a little bit about the public and I think you've, you know, kind of given, you know, there, there's different views and attitudes, but there is this big silent majority in the middle that hasn't moved yet. Because I think like, as you're saying, what they're hearing in large degree is, you um, stronger arguments for why the war should continue to be executed. And Catherine talked a little bit about, yep, there might be some discontent amongst the elite, but they don't really have any ability, I think, to collectively organize in ways that could de- destabilize Putin. But I mean, I guess that, that that was what I wanted to ask. I mean, I think both of you have, have highlighted that Putin has like very much Shredded the social contract both with the public and the elite. And so, Catherine, just to come back to you on the elite piece, like what is it that keeps them from continuing along and not in opposition? I mean, I guess the, the I guess my, the question really is, comes back to what Arcadi said is his his being surprised that key members of the elite, Nebulina and others, haven't affected. And I, I guess what I have heard repeatedly is that there's a sense among many Russians that even if they didn't agree with the war, they kind of view it as their role and responsibility to try to mitigate the impact on their fellow citizens. And so I, I don't know what you hear from the elite. Are there different justifications that people give or the way that they have to rationalize their actions um, to so, so that they do continuously stay on side with putin and not rock the boat too significantly like what 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 is it that that keeps them from collectively mobilizing i get the repression piece and maybe that's the key to it but i don't know if there's anything else that you hear in terms of how people are processing and making their decisions
1: I think with Nabi Yulana, there were basically two factors and it was it was mainly the re- repression aspect. I didn't think, you know, she tendered her resignation. We had that from two very good sources that she had submitted her resignation, but Putin didn't accept it. And if she would insisted, she would have had a one way ticket to jail. So uh, people in those type of senior positions are not allowed to leave. And we've seen that um, also, you know, since the war, senior officials have had their passports taken from them. They're not allowed to leave the country. And so you have to kind of, go through this process of, of psychological engineering in order to live with yourself and look at yourself in, in the mirror. So Nabi Ulina has justified it, uh, it to herself, well, I have to stay in my position, otherwise the consequences would be worse. The population will suffer, so we'll protect people while we can. But then she's been making those arguments to herself for a long time before the war. You know, we've always painted her as this sort of great uh liberal dowager of the Russian system but actually she oversaw uh, a nationalization of the Russian banking system that was in no way liberal uh, in any in any way in which saw kind of criminal cases really cooked up against uh, opponents uh, so um i don't think she's as uh, as liberal as she's painted to be um and i i think you know we're really seeing the cracks starting to emerge And we see this in what Prigorshan is saying. I think Arkady is right. Uh, We don't know who recruited who uh, precisely, but there is certainly a faction within the Kremlin itself, within uh, members of diplomatic circles and sort of, you know, elsewhere in the elite who are very worried now about the direction of travel in the war. Um, They've been sort of, people have been counting on uh, Western support fading, uh, that, you know, that the West would would stop supplying weapons after a certain period of time. But now that's being turned on its head because we've seen these proposals. Uh, Macron is speaking very strongly in favour of this, uh, as are other Western leaders, that basically uh, security agreements are put in place, if not for immediate membership of NATO, but for along the way, Ukraine to be supplied with a guaranteed quantity of Western weaponry every year that would be sufficient to act as a deterrence to any for the Russian aggression. And that's really kind of just turning things on their head because that's certainly not a demilitarization of Ukraine. In fact, that's the opposite. And I spoke to one member of Russian diplomatic circles, and he said, "Well, you know what? That's that's almost the same as NATO membership. Of course, it's not because it doesn't come with the security guarantee of, of boots on the ground. But uh, it certainly means that Ukraine will continue to pose a, a significant threat to Russia for for a long time to come. So none of it is working out uh, the way that they hoped or expected. I mean, we've seen several phases." Of the war, I mean, of course, in the beginning, it was launched as an operation in which you know Zelensky was meant to flee, his regime was going to crumble, and Putin would be able to take over political power in Kiev in a matter of weeks. Uh, and then he sort of quite artfully uh, kind of shifted tactics and had this sort of long ongoing war, uh, you know, in in the east, and in, w- in which they were sort of seeking to redraw the global trade map and kind of you know re all the trade flows through Turkey India and China which they succeeded in doing but then you got this other massive blow last autumn when they lost Kherson and Kharkiv and it just takes another big blow like that for the ground to shift and it just the question is uh, how big a blow does it have to be Um, I think almost it requires a miracle from Ukraine to pull off uh, a very successful counteroffensive. because the fact is the West has probably been too timid in supplying them with adequate weaponry to kind of secure such a major victory. But if there is a big military loss, then we will see uh, probably support for Putin starting to crumble away. And you see this uh, already being raised slightly. You know, people are worried about what are we achieving with this war? So, you saw that today with uh, Prigozhin's ex- extraordinary comments. And then we also saw a little sign of this too. This week, uh, Dmitry Preskov, the, the Kremlin spokesman, uh, actually said, Oh, I think we've achieved our war aims now. Ukraine is demilitarized. Uh, it doesn't have uh, its own weapons anymore. Uh, it has to rely on the West uh, in order to arm itself. And, you know, we've also achieved denazification because the Azov battalion is is no longer around. I'm not quite sure how true that is, given they did the prisoner swap. But at least he it, it, there's certainly a faction now who is publicly trying to find a way out.
0: I think you raised such a good point, Catherine. And so, Arkady, to come to you, to what extent do you think the Putin regime can sell some sort of end to the conflict? I mean, it comes back to this idea about like how malleable public opinion is and how Um, Pervasive and influential the regime's control over state run media and the information environment is inside Russia. So if Putin were to decide that the risks and this this prospect of really an outright and clear military defeat could be potentially destabilizing and they start to look for a way out. Is there, do you think he could sell something that falls clearly short of the aims that he laid out at the beginning to to the russian public or like as peskov is doing do they have such latitude that they can really um to sell something as a as a enough of a success that that people would accept it
2: um i think they do have quite a lot of latitude um as we said you know this is not uh, a popular war in a sense that nobody's asked for it. Um, people acquiesced to it because um because of propaganda and because of repression, uh, and because they just did because of psychological comfort, uh, and because of the lack of agency and the learned helplessness, all the things that we've been, you know, Catherine and I and others have been writing about for 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 years. Uh, so in that sense, could they sell it? Uh, yes, they could. I mean, they they could turn it down, uh, I guess. They could say, we've achieved our aims, because nobody particularly, apart from the noisy, but it is a large constituency of 20%, who want to continue. That's the big question. Can they contain those? Um, it would... Look, we know... Uh, Saddam Hussein has survived for 10 years. I mean, I'm nobody ever is bored of that example uh, after Iran-Iraq war. Uh, Could Putin actually survive if the war stops? Yes, he probably could uh, for a while. We don't know how long. Um, Will there be questions asked, why did we do it in the first place? Yes. Uh, It would have to result in greater repression. I mean, Putin has no story to tell, nothing to offer. Uh, Russia is not going to um, uh, return to the path of sort of economic uh, growth and globalization and integration with the West, etc. Um, so you know there would have to be repressions, and and I think that the Putin's elite elites know that that's what's probably coming. I think the uh, in terms of the population, yes, they can. In terms of the elites. I'm more doubtful uh, because everybody knows that there would have to be, to justify, there would have to be some repressions uh, and not just of the population, but also inter-elite repressions. Um, because, quite, because you know, Prigozhin will keep asking questions about whose fault it is, and they will start looking for, for scapegoats. And, and in that sense, the elite knows that it's, you know, Um, you know, it's them against the wall quite, you know, possibly quite quickly. I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating, but only slightly, but you know what I think, I think it's, it's all slightly academic uh, in a sense that stopping the war, it's not Putin's decision anymore. He doesn't control that completely uh, because um, what does that actually mean? That the Russians will the Russian forces will just kind of dig in and defend, but not not mobilize further, not advance. Well, there is another party to it. You know, Ukraine is getting more weapons. Um, the public opinion in Ukraine is on the side, they are very tired. Um, they're exhausted. Uh but you know, 85, 86, whatever it is, 90 percent of the Ukrainian population thinks that they should and rightly liberate their territory, not just because they, it's the question of justice, but because uh, it's the question of security. So I find it actually quite hard. Uh, I know this is what being now talked about. And indeed, this is what the some of the Putin people uh, have started uh, coming out with look, you know, we should. Those um, negotiations in Istanbul were not that bad. Actually, they were very good, and we should go back to that. Um, I can't see why Zelensky Ukraine would want to settle for for any of it now. And I find it very hard to imagine a, a situation where the lines completely stabilize, um, short of complete parity on on the battlefield but you know ukrainian army is getting more professional um i don't think this is the last uh counter-offensive um there are of course vagaries of war and um things can happen you know uh russian front can collapse ukrainian army could find itself in a very dangerous sort of fire pockets um but I'm finding it quite hard to imagine that this will just kind of settle.
0: Catherine, what do you think on the elite side? I mean, there's some who have argued that, I mean, given the kind of very, or given the kind of opposition and dissatisfaction among the elite with the war. Some people have argued that if Putin were to say that we could find some solution, and obviously, yes, I understand there's another party to the agreement. But if there were something that Putin were to bring home and say, "This is the, the you know, the agreement," that the elite would say, "Phew, thank you, like now we can move on." Um, to what extent it, is that your impression, or is he going to have, is he going to face a reckoning from the elite?
1: Um, I'm sure the elite would be very happy were it, be, were it to be possible for them to just sort of produce out of a hat some kind of settlement and, and move on. But as al says, that's it's not very likely. But we see increasing signs that this is what the elite would like. We even heard the Kremlin propagandist in chief Marguerite Simanyan uh, suggest that it would be great to just stop the war at the current borders. And of course it would, but there are different factions of the elite. They also have different interests in trying to freeze the conflict, because, you know, for Putin, he thinks it's an opportunity for the West to start kind of losing attention. And for other members of the Siloviki, that's a moment to kind of take pause and rearm so that they can go back a bit later and and push back harder. Um, So... Uh, and for the liberal wing, yes, of course, they'd love it to all go away. But as Akadi says, that that's not going to happen because you know there's an, a very injured party here who isn't going to be happy with having a, a large chunk of its territory taken away from it, uh, particularly when they have so much weaponry now from the West. So also,
2: uh, just to, um, to just to add to that, I think there are two other things that we should we should consider. Is one, I mean, the shift that they formed inside russia are of course enormous i mean the the violence which is already starting to spike um uh, the all the people they've taken out of prisons the laws that uh russian parliament is now passing on basically preemptive exemptions of people who commit crimes like robbery um so basically if you are the front and you in future uh, committed robbery, you will be exempt from um, any criminal charge. I mean, this be, that is basically a recipe for for violence. I mean, this this war will produce greater violence. This violence will come back into the more prosperous parts of of Russia. Uh, it is one of the big fears, you know, Russian elite, the the kind of the um, you know that, that kind of silent, the the kind of the, the elite that would love it just to stop and disappear. Um, has several fears. It has three main fears, which is one, their money will get taken away by Putin or whoever, two, that actually Ukrainians will press on and the drones will start falling on their cottages. And three, they're very aware of what happens when angry people who are traumatized and who are you know have weapons come back and start looting. I mean, they've seen looting in Butcher. I mean imagine these people coming back and looting their cottage settlements. I mean this is this this fear is real there. Uh so there is that factor and there is a factor um on the on the international side and particularly on the US side. Uh and I would say probably more on the US side than even on the European side in in that I think there is an increasing um I don't know whether to call it a consensus, but um sort of realization, particularly among the military, um and people, you know, the American military, people who think uh strategically that the aim of this war should be never again, that never again should Russia be able to use force. Um if you're American military planner. You never thought that actually you'd be able to fight, you know, wars sequentially. And if you're facing a challenge in China, then the best thing you can do is degrade Russian army now and make sure it never rises again. So neutralize that that threat. So I think there are so many now interests and so many destabilizing factors that I think it would be quite a miracle if it just kind of settles and fizzles out.
0: I wanted to pick up on that. That was going to be my question about this kind of the fears Putin stokes about this being an existential conflict for Russia. And we've obviously had, you know, Ukraine linked attacks, the drone attacks on the Kremlin and the over the uh, border attacks into Belgorod and other places. Um, How is that being interpreted, understood inside Russia? I mean, because you could kind of make two arguments. One could be, well, that it just shows the incompetence of the regime, that they can't even defend their own borders. Like, how could they let these things happen? That it's really exposing the incompetence of the regime and undermining public trust, even to a larger degree. Or you could tell a story that, you know, that this only adds fodder to Putin's Uh, efforts to convince people that this is existential, that the West wants to, you know, dissolve Russia and it it precipitates more of this besieged fortress narrative that Putin drums up so effectively. So what is your sense of how those fears are um, kind of manifesting in Russia and the the effect of these cross-border attacks and whether, you know, how Russians are reacting and responding to those?
1: I think for the Kremlin, it's, it's like really important for them to just play it down as much as possible because they don't want to look as if they're not in control. And as Al-Qadi laid out at the beginning, the main premise for the war, one of the reasons that he's been able to prosecute it for so long is because it's he's you know it's important for him to have most of Russia not understand that anything's changed and in fact that there is a real war going on. So, of course, uh, from the media, uh, most of the kind of shelling that's going on in Belgrade and the cross-border incursions, uh, that's kept largely out of the federal media this is not played up. Uh, Putin doesn't want to play up these type of attacks as an existential threat for Russia. It's much more kind of convenient for him to speak in these kind of large terms about how the US is using Ukraine as its puppet regime to threaten us, but not actually physically, but just in some kind of theoretical way. Um, So, uh, they don't want people to know or understand about this unless it directly hits them. Because yes, it does make them look weak when it happens.
0: What do you think, Arkadi?
2: Yeah, I think it brings back the memories of um, uh, to a lot of people. It brings back the memories of of the explosions of the apartment blocks and the fears of terrorism um, in the early two thousands uh, and if. You remember, of course, that what what uh, gave Putin um this aura of success as being a strong man who can climb down and then be successful, can defeat and you know, can protect. Protect from external enemy, from terrorism, and protect actually from violence, uh gangsterism, um on the streets, which was kind of his main thing that he was selling in the nineties, uh in the uh compared to the 1990s. And I think in that sense, yes, I I agree. I think the um a show of weakness that he's not in control, that something's going wrong, that violence is returning, um both externally and, and internally, uh is not good. And we have not so far seen uh any Real kind of mobilization, rallying around the flag, saying, "Okay, well, now that they've done that, known now is really time to to go and defend your motherland." It doesn't mean it, what it also hasn't done. It hasn't brought people on the street saying, "Stop it, you know, let's stop this war," because. Uh, but it's it's not consolidate. I mean, I can't see how you know. I don't see signs yet of it really consolidating the, the society in in any well, it is a consolidating society in, in sort of rhetorical way uh, in that people are now saying, well, they can't imagine, and this is a serious issue because it is something that I think is worth thinking about a lot as, as the offensive progresses, is that it's very hard for people who didn't ask for this war to confront the idea that there will be national humiliation that they have to pay a price for it because they the argument is look i didn't ask for it so why am i being uh billed for it, it wasn't my idea uh but and the idea you know the fact that there's people you know that a lot of people are complicit by and this is a war st- because he hasn't you know he pretended that it's not a war um that's a very difficult thing and it can produce more and more resentment and all the the things that we've seen in Germany after the after the First World War. So um, I think there is a risk of that. Um, I think people are. We've seen this. If you look at the Medusa, uh, a very good Russian online media, had a uh, published letters of people who were initially against the war and who've been writing saying, "Yes, I was against the war, but now when it's you know." happening we can't lose um it's actually i've just been writing um i can probably even quote you a wonderful passage and you can uh guess who who's writing it um that all their natural, feverish, hot-headed, insane excitement, which has now seized the idle upper ranks of Russian society, is merely the symptoms of the recognition of the criminality of their work. Um, spontaneous feeling tells man that they do what they are doing shouldn't be, but as the murderer who has begun to assassinate his victim cannot stop, so also Russian people now imagine that the fact of the deadly work having been commenced is an unanswerable argument in favour of war. What had begun should continue. Um, so Tolstoy was writing this in 1904, at the time of Russian war with, with Japan. Uh, so there is this element, but that's how psychology works. You know, even if they didn't want it, now is is uh, they didn't stop Russia losing the Russia-Japanese war and revolution breaking out um a year later um which was suppressed and then 12 years later the regime falling but i hope it'll be sooner than 12 years i mean i hope putin will go sooner than 12 years i don't wish for uncontrollable violence and chaos uh and a huge bloodshed uh in russia particularly a country you know for the sake of the people but also uh for the sake of everybody else Um, given that Russia is a nuclear power. And my sense is that people in Washington and people in London and Brussels and any capital in the world, and Germany, of course, and Berlin, uh, obviously there is a legitimate fear of Putin using nuclear arms, but there is also a very real fear of what happens if things start unraveling and who gets control um, and that fear had been at the forefront of the minds of the people in America since nineteen ninety-one, when George Bush went to Kyiv to make his Kiev, you know, chicken Kyiv speech, because that's what basically you you fear is the lose of control, loss of control over nuclear arms.
0: Yeah, that that was really wonderful. Um, okay, I have one last question for both of you. And I um I had, did a congressional testimony, I don't know, a month ago for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And one of the, the points, quick points are, that I made was that the war is changing Russia in still unknowable ways. And I wonder if, you know, just to hear from both of you kind of the worst case scenario for the way that the, the war is changing Russia and your most optimistic kind of take on what, what could transpire as a result of the war.
1: Um, I follow. Um, I think the 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 worst case scenario is the one exactly the one that Arkadi has just described that this spiraling out of control uh, of, of you know fighting and civil war in a country with uh, nuclear weapons. And maybe I'm naive and over optimistic, but I like to think that there are still some grown-ups in the room over there that there are members of the elite, uh, in particular in the security services. Who are actually real patriots of their country and that they would step forward and not allow something like that to happen. That the minute, say, for example, there was a significant military loss uh, and Putin's position was tarnished to such a degree that, for instance, regional governors had stopped obeying his orders, as they did with Yeltsin in 99, when when he was so tarnished, um, you know, that somebody from uh, the security services would step forward and arrange a transfer of power, like we saw with Yeltsin to Putin, that maybe this would be a member of the Siloviki who would paint himself as a patriot. Uh, Maybe, I mean, who knows who could engineer something like this, but there are powerful people within the regime, perhaps it would be Igor Sechin or Sergei Chemizov, who have their people within the FSB, within positions of power and control, who would be able to say, look, Mr. Putin, you are now the biggest threat to our country's own stability and territorial integrity. And it's either time to go or face this bullet. Um, You know, um, we just don't know how it could happen. But, you know, when you speak to members of the elite, you know that they think about this and they wonder how or if it could happen. They know it would be incredibly complicated to pull off. But they say, look, Russia is a country of coups. Every second or third leader has been removed illegally. And you have to believe that There must be real patriots within the country who would not want this disaster to happen to their own country and for it to be torn apart in such a violent way.
0: I'm determined to end on a more positive note. So that's your worst case scenario. And Arkady, I want to do yours. And then Catherine, be thinking of your best case. No, my
1: best case scenario is that That somebody somebody steps forward and uh, there is a a relatively peaceful transfer of power uh, to somebody who would be patriotic and actually want to reintegrate Russia with the West and be able to stop it from actually dissolving. And uh, kind of re- reset Russia's standing with the West, not because it wants to kowtow to the West, but because it realizes that in order to compete with the rest of the world, Russia has to be integrated with it.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then, Arkady, over to you. And I mean, I because I mean, you both have made such, you know, it really. Thought-provoking points and, Arkady, your point about especially like the violence inside Russia and what it means to have people coming back from the front who have some sort of kind of immunity to carry out violence and crime and other things. And I mean, you know, it, it appears to me, you know, that Putin is taking Russia in a more totalitarian direction almost as he really seems to be shifting Russia from a more demobilized society to a more mobilized one. You know, it's putting Russia on a wartime footing. Uh, You're seeing more evidence of citizen reporting on other citizens. And so there is a a relatively dark story, I think, you can tell about what a future Russia looks like. And that's not to mention, you know, if Russia is defeated, um, kind of the the resentment and other things that could kind of fester uh, and what that means for a future Russia. So I worry a lot about that, but I don't know kind of Arkady... If you were thinking kind of of a, a more worst case kind of scenario for the future Russia that we face, what would it be? And then you can, then we will end on a more optimistic yeah, note. There is no
2: shortage of terrible scenarios uh, you can, you can for thumb. And, you know, it's true that at any point in Russian history, you can think of why things should go really, really, really badly. It's a miracle that sometimes they don't uh i mean that's the most surprising thing about russia one thinks you think everything is lost and this is of course you know there is only one path and it's to uncontrollable violence something actually happens and somebody steps in as Catherine described or you know um chain stocks breathing effects um uh stalin and um suddenly this man nobody thought of steps in into controlling position, even though he's up to his neck and you know, called Nikita Khrushchev, and then things start happening. Or why this man with a birthmark on his forehead, nobody heard of, called Mikhail Gorbachev, actually comes. But uh, I, I think, you know, th- there are, and there are these moments in Russian history and th- things do turn. But um, I think, rationally thinking, it's, it's very hard, at the moment, it's very hard to see how. This doesn't end with some spasm of violence. Uh, the question to me is how big? Um, simply because there are these people who are traumatised, who have been at the front, and there are a lot of them. And we've seen this after the Chechen War. We've seen this after the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we're not just talking, you know, th- This there's a lot of men with arms um, with the uh, who have been severely traumatised, some with a criminal past, uh, in a country where even you know, there isn't even law against domestic violence. So uh, there are those...
0: Too. A lot of the more, like, liberal Russians have left, right? So it's like, it seems like a really, I mean... Right,
2: uh, but what Catherine describes, I think, is uh, I'm also quite hopeful. I, I disagree with the last, probably... I'm more doubtful about the last part about sort of reintegration with the West, although, th- because I think that would require... Uh, quite a significant change in regime, which is not impossible. I think the positive scenario is um, is the one where Russia suffers um, enough of a defeat on the battlefield that brings about exactly what Catherine has described, when somebody, you know, grown up, steps in, and, and where basically somebody makes a deal, and there are three factions, as there always have been, um, which is the army, the security services, and in the Soviet times it was the party, now it's your bureaucracy, you know, it's your kind of your money and the two forces of power and they make a deal, two of them make a deal against the third one. Um, that's what happened in 1953, this is uh, actually what happened in other countries, that happened in Uzbekistan recently. Uh, so there is that scenario, uh, then somebody more moderate comes in who uh does uh, make probably some um pass at no normalizing things, otherwise, there is a new factor which wasn't there before. Uh, of course, the first call doesn't have to be made, as a friend of mine said, who um studies China, doesn't need to be made to Washington, the first call can be made to Beijing, um, so. It might take time, um, but there could be a transformation sort of in the second sort of second wave. I think it's we're in the choppy waters. I completely agree with that statement that we are in completely uncharted territory. Completely uncharted territory. We've never been here before, so we shouldn't rely too much on history because it doesn't tell us what's going to happen at all. Um and my best hope is this. If you look for the reasons for this war um, and when this confrontation started, it started basically in the mid-2000s, 2006, 2007, dates back to basically when Putin realised that an open Russia, which is integrating with the West, is a path towards... Um, emancipation uh, and a path towards, you know, a version of a nation state, and is a threat to his power and a threat to his idea of Russia as simply an iteration of the Soviet Union and Soviet Union being iteration of the Russian Empire. It was at that point when he decided that this is impermissible. Um, what we've seen throughout all those years since then, is that the forces of, of social modernization have been growing. The attitudes of the young have been changing. Uh, in television watching, in the use of internet, in volunteering, in attitude to animals, in attitude to women, in feminism, which has been a massive and very, very important social trend. Um, that those trends, the, the trends of social modernization. Have been quite active, which is why it required Putin in the end to crash them with this unbelievable violence. I mean, I remember that Navalny, before going back to Moscow, the last conversation we had face to face was when he said, "Look, of course they know that people are not you know they know that time is moving against them. So the best hope is the time catches up." and those forces of modernization, uh, which were there, and it's a real constituency, becomes more present uh, and becomes, I don't think they will seize power. I don't think any one party or any one part of society will actually have a monopoly on power. Otherwise it's going to be a dictatorship of, of whatever kind, but they are very present in whatever coalition can appear as a result of this war.
0: Well, that is a lovely way to end. Um, and gosh, this, I think I could have talked with both of you for hours more. Um, I'm so appreciative of your time and your insights. And I think we'll have to do this again because it was really um, a very wonderful conversation. So Arcadi and Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels sprouts brought to you by the transatlantic security team at the center for a new American security. You can find all of our previous episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.